I want to show people the real life of a professional designer, the projects that I work on, how I work on them, how I make decisions, the challenges I run into along the way. That's the kind of thing that I'm looking to share. And that sort of lens frames all of my content, like not just on YouTube, that is also the newsletter, the book, the anything I tweet as well. <laughs> it, it sort of all comes from this. In this episode, I talked with Charlie Prangley. Charlie is the creative director at, well, ConvertKit. So she and I have actually worked together for four and a half years. And uh, during that time, well, be actually before she joined ConvertKit, she'd built a popular YouTube channel about design uh, and you know, specifically marketing design. Um, she's at over 200 or right about 200,000 subscribers on YouTube, which is incredible. She's got all kinds of projects. So in this episode, we dive into uh, things about design. She and I are both designers, and so we love those topics. We talk about side hustles and how you balance that with a full-time job, like her career, you know, moving up the ladder, becoming creative director at ConvertKit, um, but also uh, all the other things that she wants to create, what gives you energy, what doesn't. Uh, we talk about sharing things about money online and how that is a can be a tough topic. Uh, and so she shares her income. She does videos about salaries, about income from side hustles, all of that. Uh, so we talk about those details. And then we talk about, you know, as a newsletter creator, is YouTube something that you might want to pursue and tips and tricks and, and ideas for that. So anyway, I'll get out of the way and we'll dive into the episode. Charlie, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited, honored to be on the Nathan Barry show. <laughs> That's right. I, I'm, I'm glad that it gets that kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, enthusiasm. Yeah. You know, that's good. <laughs> is that only because we've worked together for so long? Like, you know? Maybe. Honestly, actually, I'd probably be more excited to be on if we hadn't worked together for so long. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You're actually like, fine, fine, I'll come on your podcast. <laughs> but to be clear, I'm doing it during work hours and you're yeah, paying yeah. for this. And, uh, <laughs> this is a favor to you. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> exactly. Whereas separately, you know, if we hadn't spent the last, you know, four years working together, then, then, uh, <laughs> you'd actually like really want to do it. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe let's start there. Cause we have spent the last four years working together. Um, four and a half really. Yeah. More like four and, and a half. Yeah. So coming, approaching five this fall. Um, the first thing that I want to ask you about is how you think about all the different things that you're doing as a creator. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, you've got, you know, the, the YouTube channel, you have, uh, podcasts, you have a newsletter and everything else. And I, I just love to think, hear how you think about the intersection of those things. And then we can get into, um, like the intersection of a, of a full-time role and all the full-time creator things. So what's the, uh, like Charlie's creator landscape. Ooh, I like that. I would say that I'm aiming to make the kind of content that would have helped out, you know, like the me from two years ago. And that's kind of been my approach the whole time through. So when I started, maybe I was making stuff more for beginners and every now and then I will still, but I'm trying to like level up my audience as well as I level up in my career. And I love the term creator. I feel like it's definitely the best way to describe me because yeah. I'm not just a YouTuber. I'm not just a podcaster or just a blogger or a writer or whatever. Um, I do all the things like wherever I feel drawn to create and whichever method I feel like will best express the thing that I'm trying to teach or share is what I lean into. Yeah. 
That makes sense. Uh, that's more, that's how I feel like you can't put me in a box. Yeah. Like, no. How dare you? <laughs> the only box that I'm willing to accept is a giant, all encompassing free form mm -hmm. box of creator. <laughs> that molds and like changes shape as you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So you have all of these things. Um, maybe your most recent thing that I want to talk about is inside marketing or inside mm -hmm. marketing design, really. Mm -hmm. Inside marketing would be an entirely different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're talking inside marketing design. Um, I'd love to hear first why you wanted to start that um, mm -hmm. and maybe to seed the direction a little bit. I've heard you talk about like design being so focused. Uh, people either talk like graphic design or mm -hmm. they talked product design, mm -hmm. you know? And so we're like into user experience and user interface. I'm curious how marketing design uh, fits into that and your, your desires there. Yeah. So um, honestly, inside marketing design started as much of my content does, which is, I wish this existed. It doesn't exist. Maybe I'll be the one to make it. Um, I yep. found myself just like really wanting to hear about how other companies set up their marketing design teams, how their marketing designers get work done. And when you searched around for like, I don't know, medium articles and things like that, it's all about product design. It's all about product design teams, UX design teams and how they work with engineers. And I'm like, what about the marketing design side of things? It's super important, especially in tech where most marketing design happens, most marketing, sorry, happens online and you need the digital design to make that happen. A brand is super important for building up a company to, you know, uh, a high level. And I just think it's completely underappreciated marketing design in the industry. And so it's like my personal mission to um, raise up the profile of marketing design in the eyes of the wider design industry and tech industry. And yeah, Inside Marketing Design is an interview show that was completely self-indulgent where I got on calls with designers who work at other tech companies and learned about how they did their work. <laughs> I feel like the best podcasts and newsletters and things like that are completely self-indulgent mm -hmm. because they come from this natural curiosity. Like that's where this show comes from. It's just like, these are the people that I want to talk to. And they'll be more likely to say yes to talk to me <laughs> if it's for a podcast, you know, because otherwise like you end up in the, can I pick your brain yes. thing? And that's yep. like, nope, no, 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 no. Like that goes in a very special bucket of, mm -hmm. of emails. But if you're like, can I have you on your podcast? You're asking 90% the same thing. You know, and the best questions are the ones where I'm like, I genuinely want to know this. <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. That's definitely the approach I take to it. Um, and since then, I've been I've been surprised by the response that the, the number of people who were also interested in this very specific niche thing I was interested in as well. You know, uh, it definitely has a way smaller audience than if it was perhaps a product design podcast or a UX design podcast. But that's kind of the point, right, is that I want to make content for this niche, this very underserved, I believe niche in particular what's interesting is that i feel like um the market exists like i'll be obviously there's lots of marketing designers right because yeah. we're all going to the like every time stripe comes out with a feature it's yes. the most beautiful page ever you know and, and all this right we look at uh, even just within the niche of software like all of the design is so beautiful today compared to what it was even five years ago and so obviously there's marketing designers everywhere. It's just that the, the content hasn't caught up with that. For whatever mm -hmm. reason, I feel like the UX designers and uh, and the freelancers have been so much more prolific in like content of this is how I run my business and this is how we structure our teams. And so it feels to me like the market, it's not that the market is small, it's that um, it's just not established yet. There's not yeah. as big of a community. 
Yep, totally. And there's not even one specific term, like even marketing design, some companies would call it brand design, some would call it just right. web design, the creative team. I don't know, there's lots of different terms for it. So yeah, I guess I'm also trying to like unify us all under this marketing design umbrella as well, because it is, it's design that helps market a product yeah. or service. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and it takes someone to say like, hey, um, this this is the term that we're all using. Just yeah. in case you're yeah. wondering. <laughs> oh, that? You know, what you, what you mean is marketing design. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, who are some people that you've had on the podcast that are particular companies that you've interviewed where you're like, we're really excited to dive in and learn what they were doing? Yeah, so I was really excited to have Adam Stoddard from Basecamp on the first season um, back when he was still at Basecamp. Uh, and I don't know, it was just really interesting to learn about how they, how they do things. Um, same with Webflow, had Johnny Gomez from Webflow on. I've been a nice. big fan of Webflow for a very long time. And so yeah, digging in and hearing more about the day-to-day because -day, it's one thing to just look at a company's marketing site or their marketing materials, and it's another to hear about the process they went into producing it and like, where does this designer sit within the org structure of the company? How do they do things? So yeah, we go into lots of nerdy details like that, and it's been fun. I feel like I've learned from you know doing the episodes myself. Like um, One thing that Johnny actually brought up uh, is that when he's designing sites for Webflow, he will write the copy for them as well. Like he doesn't use lorem ipsum or filler copy. Yep. He'll like write real copy. And I would usually write like sort of like a placeholder copy that indicated what I wanted to say. Like it would be like headline about this. Um, but since then, since that interview with Johnny, I've leaned in more to like, okay, let me just try it. Let me just try write a headline. And, uh, you know, the writer can come in and fix it up later if they want to. But yeah, there's been lots of cool little little learnings that have helped me in my process. And yeah, I hope has helped the audience too. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I feel like people do this with every skill that they're not, that they don't feel confident in. I was going to say competent, but often they're competent in skills that they don't actually, yeah. like competent and confident, Different, uh, yeah. you know, don't always coexist. And so I think that with design, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, that's design. I can't, like, I'm not a designer. I can't touch it. And you're, you know, I'm always trying to use tools like Figma, like gradually draw people in of like, oh, but what if you tried, you know, and yeah. like, yeah, maybe it looks terrible, but here's this process. And I feel like copywriting is one of those things where people are like, I, I don't know how to do that. I'm not a copywriter. I'm, I'm a designer. I'm whatever else. And it's like, okay, but if you had to, what would this headline say? Oh, we'll probably say something like this. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> like that's probably 70% there, you know? And then like, if you had to write a better one, what would it say? Oh, maybe it'd be this, you know? And, and that being able to jump in, like you'll find often that you're competent, um, even before you're confident in those skills. Yeah. So, uh, you've got the podcast. Well, actually really quick, you said something uh, about the podcast. You said, you mentioned seasons. Oh yes. Um, how do you think about, uh, doing it in seasons and how does that fit into like your workflow? Yeah, I wanted to do it in seasons because uh, this is actually my second podcast. I have one called Design Life that I've been running with a co-host for years, and that is not one with seasons. It's sort of like an every week thing, although we are on a break at the moment. Uh, and I just like know how much work it is. Like a style break or what kind of break? Uh, oh, no, we're on like a summer break. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone knows you're on a break. It's not like yes. you think you're on a break and your co-host doesn't think you are. Okay, yeah, that's good. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've been watching Friends lately. I can't help it. <laughs> So um, I knew that I wanted to do inside marketing design in seasons because of just how much work it is to do a podcast constantly. Mm -hmm. um, I thought I could package, like have, my goal was 10 to 12 interviews to 
collate them into a season and also do a wrap-up episode at the end of the season, just covering some of the things that I learned, some highlights, things like that to tie a little bow on it. And uh, yeah, I'm starting the prep work for season two right now. Uh, my goal is to do one season a year of, yeah, 10 to 12 episodes each. Nice. What I like about that is you're able to be deliberate about what you're committing to. You can start it when you actually have like energy and momentum towards it. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's also a fixed commitment. So you're like yes. saying, I don't know what the analogy is. Like you're not even hopping on the treadmill or if, if you are, you're like, this is a five mile run or this is a three mile run or whatever. Right. And then you're like, and then I'm going to hop off instead of being like, Hey, I'm going to get on this treadmill and I'm going to do it until I get burnt out and regret doing it. And then I'll quit about three months after that. Yep. Yep. Exactly that. And I would compare it more to a marathon than a five mile run, but you know, just to get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some of us are more ambitious than others. Um, so what's the, like going back to the creator landscape, right. Mm -hmm. Of in, in your world, you've got the podcast. It seems like that is the main driver the main source of new content uh, for inside marketing design, but you've also got a newsletter, a job board, and then a book coming. So yes. how do you think about the other other aspects? Yeah, so uh, the newsletter I started, honestly, I feel like it was from something that I'd seen you write talking about okay. like building up your authority on, um, it was probably in authority actually now that I think about it, um, building up your authority on a topic before you're going to release um, you know, a paid product about it. And so I thought, well, this would be a really great way for me to generate like a warm audience of people who are interested in marketing design if I start a marketing design newsletter. So it's called the Marketing Design Dispatch and it goes out on Mondays and um, it's, sometimes it's like a little essay. Maybe it's like even a piece of writing that I've been doing for the book that I'm writing about marketing design. Or maybe it's a deep dive into analyzing a new marketing website that I've seen, a rebrand, something like that, as well as sharing content that I th has been useful for me or that I've seen around the internet. Um, and yeah, I've had a good response to it so far because I, I started just sending it out to my existing list. And um, yeah, I gave people the option to opt out of getting it if they didn't want to. And maybe like a, a couple hundred people did that. But yeah, the, the most, the majority of my list has stayed around for it, which has been cool. Yeah. So how, how big is that list? And then and where did that existing list come from? Mm, so the current list is 18,000 subscribers. I just did a big cold subscriber cull the other day. It yep. was up to like 24,000. And so, you know, my engagement graph and convert kits looking nice and green at the moment. Nice. Um, yeah. And the majority of my list previously had come from one, I had this really popular YouTube video about DIY screen printing. <laughs> and so people sign up to my list to get a free opt-in that has like a PDF written with the instructions. So those are the ones that, you know, probably went cold, let's be honest, but you know. Yeah. Um, I also have a couple of other opt-ins about creating a design system for a marketing website, how to advocate for yourself as a designer, self-promotion as a designer, just a few sort of like things I've created along the way, as well as just a general sign up on my website. So yeah, most people are there because they're interested in my content, I guess. Um, and so probably a lot of that is coming from either Twitter, um, but the bulk of it being from YouTube. Is that right? A lot from YouTube, also a lot from my own website and from Twitter, I would say. Yeah. Okay. So you've got the newsletter there. And then this is actually something that I was genuinely curious about. Like why launch a job board? That feels like another, uh, you're already juggling a bunch of things. Yes. Like how, Great point. <laughs> how does that fit in? Yeah. So the job board came about, uh, 
honestly because of the platform that I have it on. It's called Palette, and it's a way that communities can create a job board to advertise roles to their community. So it's mm -hmm. quite like creator focused and it's meant to be heavily curated. So it's not like you come to my board and you find any type of design role. It's like a job board specifically for marketing design and brand design roles. And so, yeah, it's my goal to have it be the place that if you're looking for that type of role, you come search on here. And if you're hiring for it, you come post on my job board because you know that I'm gonna send it out to my audience of people who are interested in this topic. And like, it just feels like a good fit. Um, right. It's been pretty low lift so far, honestly. So that's another reason why I took it on because it wasn't uh, like I had to make the site myself or anything. Palette has the system and um, they manage the payments for the job postings and things like that. I just go in when one gets submitted and see if I want to approve it and it gets posted. Nice. Yeah, I've noticed other people. There's a creator who I hope to have on the podcast soon uh, named Sahil Bloom who has like a couple hundred thousand followers on Twitter, a popular newsletter and all of that. And he just launched a board called bloom board which mm -hmm. i think is a great yeah great name <laughs> i chuckled you know um and so uh, it's just interesting as a business model because right when you have this audience of tens of thousands or or even more that's really what you're you're selling access to and yep. it's interesting you know like i'm used to selling products to individual creators where 50 dollars or 100 dollars or 200 dollars is enough money that people are thinking hard about it but what's interesting about a, a job board is that, especially when in the tech world, where someone is like, hey, can you help me find this person that I'm going to mm -hmm. pay somewhere between one hundred and $200,000 a year? And so, like, the I assume, <laughs> your, I don't know what your experience is, but the willingness to pay for that product is fairly high. And they're really paying for access to your 18,000 subscriber newsletter. Yeah, exactly. And the I also have a tier on the job board where you can choose to pay um, like a much higher fee. And I mention it in a YouTube video as well that goes out to my audience of like 200,000 on there. And so it just right. seems like, yeah, smart idea. No one's taken me up on that option yet, but I hope in time they will. <laughs> well, if nothing else, it's there for like package it, like positioning yeah, in exactly. there of like, well, maybe we dive in. What are the price points right now at the time of recording? Ooh. Oh, shoot. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, let me look it up quickly. <laughs> or Google it. You know, that's okay yeah, yeah, yeah. too. I'm just going to go to my own job board. How about that? So I think it's um, I think it's 300 for an initial, like just a plain posting. Yeah. Um, 500 for featured, which then has like a, you know, special section of my newsletter as well. And then I believe I priced it at like 1200 for the one that includes the YouTube shout out, um, okay. which is like in line with what I charge YouTube sponsors. It's actually a lot cheaper than what I charge YouTube sponsors, but you know, I figure it's a good fit and it's doing service to my community to be promoting it as well. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So what was the research that you did going into like, I imagine it was more than like, oh, palette looks interesting. Great, let's add this monetization method. Um, mm -hmm. What went in as you, as you were seeing of like, okay, I have this community and a job board is the way that I want to monetize it because I saw these people do it or I saw, mm -hmm. you know. That was the reason why, yep. Um, it was mostly my friend Femke, who was my co-host on the Design Life podcast. She had started one with Palette and I saw her doing it. And I was like, oh, this looks interesting. Like, tell me more about this. Um, and she said that Palette had approached her and explained the system. So yeah, I reached out to them, got on a call with them. They're super like new as a startup basically. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, we're in on, on the ground floor and helping them along the way with building features and, you know, suggesting what to build that sort of thing in their Slack group. Uh, yeah. And I just decided 
this makes more sense than trying to build and maintain a website of my own because they are doing right. that work. And, uh, you know, as someone who creates on the side of a full-time job, leading a team at ConvertKit, I, you know, want to have this be minimal effort on my part to mm -hmm. get it out there. So it just made sense. So you're not very far into this, right? Or like... No, it's brand new. I've only had like one person pay to post so far. It's very new. Yeah, <laughs> we're just getting started. And so maybe this is a better question for like some point in the future. But like if someone was coming to you and saying like, okay, I have a newsletter of 10 or 20,000 subscribers is like, should I consider a job board as well? Like as a monetization method, what, what would your uh, perspective be at this stage? Right. Yeah. I think that is a good question that I can definitely answer now. I would say if you could, if your niche for your newsletter is super clear and there's mm -hmm. like a certain type of people who read it or that you're speaking to when you write it, it could make sense to have a job board. Um, there was a, some initial effort for me in finding some jobs to populate the board with so it wasn't launching with nothing, right. you know, but from then on, it feels like very low commitment because it's uh, mostly inbound, right? It's people coming to you to post. So it's not going to be worth it for you if you don't have perhaps the profile in the community yet to get those inbound leads or, you know, get people visiting your board so that you have the good stats to, to talk, tell people about. But yeah, if, if you do have those things, consider it as an extra income stream. I think it's smart to add, like diversify where your income is coming from. Um, that was a big thing that led to me, uh, we haven't gone into this yet, but last year I doubled the income that I made from my side hustles and having like multiple small streams is how I did it rather than having like one giant successful right. stream, if that makes sense. So yeah, I'm considering the job board as part of that. Yeah. I want to get into the side hustles as well. Um, maybe before we do that, well, no, let's just go right there now. I guess the first thing that I'm, I'm curious about is you share all of your numbers transparently publicly mm -hmm. that I do as well. Um, and you also dive in, like you have popular videos on, um, like salaries for designers, your own salary history. Like one of my favorite videos that you've put together is like, here's the salary that I've had at every role, you yep. know, across my, <laughs> and every raise that career. I had throughout my career. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, why, why that level of transparency? Nathan, I feel like you're fishing for compliments, even though you don't realize you are, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> honestly, it's because I, I got a lot of value from reading your income reports, seeing people yeah. like Pat Flynn's income reports as well. Uh, and it just, I think it, it changed my mindset on money. It just, it's something that we are taught that it has a taboo around it, right? And we all mm. keep it secret for some reason because everyone else does. And so we think right. we have to as well. And I don't know, I guess just seeing other people share and seeing the value that I got from it and seeing how it didn't change my perception of them. If anything, it made me respect them more. I was like, well, you know, I feel like I am confident in what I'm earning and I'm confident that I'm being paid what I'm worth. So why don't I just share this history with other people and tell them about it? And yeah, since then, I feel like I've slowly gotten more and more transparent. And the latest income report on my blog is the most transparent I've ever been. And uh, yeah. I, no regrets. That's <laughs> something that comes up. Like the reason I asked the question other than fishing for compliments, which I'm absolutely <laughs> doing, like, okay. you know, unashamedly. Um, <laughs> the reason that I ask is because I think so many people are so timid about it. And so I want mm -hmm. like to have more of a conversation, not about like just the like bold, brave people who are out there doing it, but like just to try to normalize it so much more. And so I'm curious, what have been some of the downsides? You know, mm -hmm. like there's always... There's got to be at least 
some YouTube comments or some emails Definitely. or yeah. something. And so maybe we can, can share a little bit about what the, I guess the, the outside edge of like, yeah. Hey, this is the downside rather than just telling everyone like, Oh, it was fine. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. And I would love to hear this from you as well. Um, yeah. I've had YouTube comments on both ends of the spectrum to the salary video in particular, some saying, this is irresponsible to tell people this is their rate. They're going to set them way too low. If they go and asking for what your salary is, you're being underpaid, that sort of thing. Yep. Uh, probably the people who live in San Francisco and work at like a Google or a Facebook or something like that. I yeah. don't know. It turns out you make like 500 grand a year, like yeah. something crazy. You yeah. you have to sell your soul. That's the only like. That's the caveat. Thing, but other yeah. than that, like you're good. So I've had those people. I've also had the people saying like, oh my gosh, that's like so much money uh, design is like way overvalued. There's people who are like, you know, saving lives in hospitals. And I'm like, yeah, that's a fair freaking point. I won't swear on your podcast, but great point that maybe the answer isn't we should pay designers less, but maybe we should pay doctors and nurses more, you know, like, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> let's take that approach to it. Um, but honestly, less of that than I expected is, is what I've seen. Um, maybe, maybe those sort of comments are happening in a less public forum, like maybe people are talking about me behind my back. I don't know, but probably not. I, yeah, well, I yeah, guess. who knows? But either way, the, the people who I care about, I haven't heard that from. Um, right. I will say one interesting thing I noticed is that since sharing my salary history and things, um, whenever I'll like offer to buy my family dinner or like, I don't know, we'll be out, be like, I'll pay. They protest less now. <laughs> we'll just say that. <laughs> 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 well, that was going to be my next question is how it interacts with family. Yeah. Um, and so now it sounds like they're just like, they're like, that's okay. Yeah. We understand she can afford it. <laughs> like they say like, no, 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 we can split it or something, but they only say it once instead of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They don't t protest too hard. What about you? What have been some of the, like the positives and negatives you've had? Yeah. I mean, lots of positives because I feel like the more transparent you are, the more I mean, the more people read your content, the more they enjoy it, the more they understand you. Um, and so the more they want to connect, like so the number of people who um, I really respect and am a fan of who have reached out and been like, oh, let's chat. And I'm like, you know, I'm like playing it cool. I'm like, yeah, 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 that'd be great. I, you know, I've, I've like seen your stuff on Twitter and really it's like, no, no, I've listened to every episode of your podcast or like <laughs> some version of that. Right. And it's like, be cool, Nathan, <laughs> you know? Um, so there, there's been a lot of that on the downsides. Um, let's see. I would say this was more early on, right? Cause I've been transparent with numbers for the last eight, eight years or so. Um, but especially I got started in online business when I was really young. And so, um, in the communities that like, like friends from high school or church or, you know, um, or my wife Hillary's friends, like, in those circles, a lot of people were much earlier in their careers. Mm. And so there was a time that, you know, people were making 25, 30, maybe $40,000 a year in those circles. And then over here, I'm like, if you, if they ask me what I do, I'm like, oh, I'm a writer or I'm a blogger or something like that. But on my blog, I'm talking about how like I made $250,000 last year. Right. Yeah. Right. And so there were a few awkward times when those worlds like crossed mm -hmm. and it was, yeah, but that was a long time ago. And how did you handle it when, when they did cross, though? Like, how did you handle the situation or the awkward conversations? Yeah. Um, well, I remember one person in particular. It was one of uh, 
<laughs> we're, we're not, we don't, we aren't very good friends with them anymore. Not because of this, but just like, okay, different just part. clarify. Yeah. <laughs> but it was uh, one of my wife's friends, husbands, you know, it's one mm-hmm. of those things where like you go to a party and for whatever reason, everyone segregates by gender and you're <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Why do we do this? You know, but is this like, a middle school dance? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it was one of those things where someone who was genuinely interested in learning online business and, you know, and that sort of thing in the group and like followed my blog and understood it was like asking questions about like, Oh, how did this latest launch go? And, and I was like answering the questions, but you, I was just getting this feeling of like awkwardness mm. from this other person. And so it was like, like, I always try to be transparent, but it, like, I couldn't, I was struggling to reconcile, like, in-person Nathan with online Nathan at that time. Yes. Yep. Um, I'm glad that that resonates. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Yeah. It was totally normal to be able to talk about, like, a, a book launch or something um, online, but to talk about it in person of, like, oh, this made, like, $40,000 in the course of a couple of days was a really weird thing to say so I like danced around it and kind of said it and from this other person got like just a straight up like oh wouldn't that be nice to just like yeah send you know send an email and make all this money and not have to work for it when you're like well I just I did the work in advance though so (laughs) exactly (laughs) you know that's not the moment where you're like be like well let's take a step back and let me get out the whiteboard Mm -hmm. and like let's explain leverage and how you belong you know I'm like Wrong, wrong vibe. And I just kind of shut down. I didn't know how to navigate that uh, situation. So I did it poorly, you know, like kind of laughed it off. Someone else like felt the tension in the group and like made a joke and took the conversation some other way. And, you know, yeah, that was probably the most like awkward mm. scenario that I've ever had. Um, I, I think I have the same thing that you do of like family is now like, okay, yeah, no, you can, <laughs> that's fine. We'll let you pay for that. Yeah. Um, which is honestly one of my favorite. Like I, I like yeah paying for things. And, Same. I wouldn't offer if I didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. um, and my family's been been fantastic about all that. I think another thing that um I've noticed is I don't know. Like I think if you're going to start talking about money online, you have to, you can decide how much you want to share. Right. Just because you're being transparent about something doesn't mean you owe anyone anything more than what you decide you want to share. So for me, I share my income and I shared my business expenses, like the content production expenses this year. But I don't talk about like, oh, here's all everything I paid in tax There's everything that I paid to like live my life or I don't know. Like there's some things that I'm not interested in talking about online. And I don't know. I I started out giving people excuses when they would like push for more and more and more. But now I kind of feel like I've given you a lot. Like you take that and run with it. Like it it doesn't, it shouldn't matter to you. Um, My answer when people ask me, well, how much did you pay in taxes? And I I just say, I paid the correct amount. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what, what benefit does it have to you to know this? You're not living in my exact situation. So I don't understand like how it would help. So you know, right. I, I decided that's not a thing that I want to talk about. And um, I am fine with that. And maybe some people aren't, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great boundary. And and that's something probably that I haven't talked about this, on this podcast that I'm, I'm curious for your answer on is what boundaries have you set in your like personal versus mm. professional, like creator life, right? Because uh, there are definitely people who, who would look at you and I and be like, oh, God, I could never like put myself out there in, that, in those ways. Like, 
I would never show up on camera. I like, I wouldn't talk about my life. I wouldn't put things on the internet under my real mm -hmm. name. Like any, everyone have, has these different boundaries. And so I'm curious, like what are some of yours and how have you set those over time? Yeah, I think over time I've settled more into my content that I put out online being very focused on my work and obviously mm -hmm. who I am showing up to do my work, who I am as a designer, but I don't share a lot of my personal life online. I'll share like the odd Instagram story here and there, pictures of my cats, that sort of thing. But you're not going to find me, for example, vlogging on the weekend being like, right. oh, now I'm just hanging out with my boyfriend watching Formula One. You know, that's that's not the kind of content I'm trying to make. I'm just trying to make design focused. This is my work. This is my process. This is how I get it done sort of content. Um, I did used to vlog more of the personal side of things and it was fun and it's fun to have those videos to look back on, but it's also a lot like it, as much as you try to live in the moment while also capturing it, your attention is always going to be split some way. Right. And so, you know, that's just a decision I made was to take more time offline when I'm not working and just document the work as what I share has been a good, good split for me that works for me and my life, my family. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I feel like it's something that people probably do both what you and I have done of like not really having those clear boundaries. And then you just gradually figure them out and yeah, set them over to figure out what works. For I you. think there are people who, you know, have things like, Oh, I will never put, um, like my kid's face mm. on online or something like that. Right. Um, I think like Casey Neistat has, has yeah. that where like the, like certain clips they'll be blurred or mm -hmm. they're Just like, Oh, the, they're the walking the through yeah. New York. Yeah, exactly. It's the back of the head or you're like, Oh, yeah. there's a kid in a stroller that you can't really see. You yeah. Know? Um, and it's just interesting to try to try to navigate that. So I appreciate people who are intentional and I think I just haven't, there's a lot of things that I haven't figured out exactly. And you'll see how it changes over time. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I think, you know, what you're comfortable with, comfortable with, you know, with the YouTube channel of a thousand or 10,000 subscribers is different than what you're comfortable with at 200,000. Yeah. And uh, that changes over time too. Something I recently started doing this year is streaming my work, um, streaming mm -hmm. on Twitch. And I don't know, I'd, I'd been very resistant to doing live streams in the past because I was just nervous about what having people watch me design. Yeah, I, maybe it was imposter syndrome I was feeling or I don't know, just worried about people judging me when they're seeing right. the messy middle of the process rather than me presenting like this final thing that I've finished and it looks great. Um, and there's been, that was a fun challenge to overcome, honestly. It's been a really fun way to build community over on Twitch, uh, like diversifying my audience in a way from not just being focused on YouTube or Twitter, but, um, building small audiences elsewhere. It's been cool. Okay. So you said diversify, which is interesting. And I like that. Um, do you worry about it diluting your efforts and diluting your audience of picking up another, another channel or platform? Kind of, but also no. Um, so I have this person in my mind who is like my creator idol. Um, you've probably heard of her, Jessica Heesh. She is uh -huh. a designer, a, a letterer, illustrator, and I'm just such a big fan of her work and in how she shows up online in that she's just doing cool stuff all the time. Well, that's what it feels like anyway, like right. doing cool things, putting it out there. You wouldn't call her a blogger or a, I don't know, like just a speaker or just someone on Twitter. Like she's all of those things. Um, and she just like shows up in, in different ways to share different pieces of her work. That's what I'm trying to do. I don't want to be known as just a YouTuber and lock myself into that. And I feel like I did for a while. 
And it's only really been probably in the last year that I feel like I've pulled out of that. And that's not how I mostly hear people describe me anymore. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to trying to show up online and share things. And uh, yeah, maybe I could be more successful in terms of building a bigger audience if it was just focused on YouTube, for example. But that's not my end goal, right? So it it doesn't serve me. Um, and I'm more interested in just being being a well-rounded person like I call it a digital citizen. This is what I did my um, honors degree project about. So I'm a bit nerdy about it, but yeah, I like being a digital citizen and giving stuff to the internet. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it. Well, so maybe if we dive in a little bit on YouTube, since that is where the bulk of your audience yes. you know, has come from and, and all of that. Um, what were the things, like as you look back over the last you know, 200,000 subscribers, what were the things that made the biggest impact of mm. either any step functions in growth or, um, you know, particular videos or really just habits that have, yep. have paid off over time? I think it's mostly been habits, honestly. Uh, there's only one sort of uh, step point in my growth that I can point to is when I was featured on a list of the design channels to follow on YouTube. And that gave me like a big boost. But most how, of my growth on YouTube... Boost? Mm, I can't remember now, several thousand, like more than what okay. I would usually get. It was significant, like a difference. Was in that the graph. when you were at like 10,000, 50,000? Um, I can't even remember now. I feel like probably around like 20,000 ish. Okay. Maybe. So we're talking a significant boost at this point is like yes, 10%, 20%. Yes. In like within a week sort of thing felt like major that I started to see those numbers increase. Um, but most of my growth on YouTube has been like slow and steady, just like climbing up over time. For the first five years of being on YouTube, you mentioned habits. Um, I didn't miss a single week of uploading for five freaking years. I don't know how I did it now. I miss weeks all the time now. But right. yeah, that really helped me get in the habit of making videos, get in the habit of having an idea, figuring out how to express it, learning how to edit, putting it out there, getting a response, making it better next time. Um, I think if I'd stressed a lot about my first, oh, however many videos I made in those five years, uh, I would have taken a lot longer to grow if I'd been trying to perfect each one. But instead, I was just like, nope, what matters is getting something out there. So I'm going to get something out there. Um, and that, that was a huge part in building my consistency. Then the other thing I think I'd say helped is deciding who I'm talking to on YouTube. I started out making content about a bunch of different stuff and eventually settled, no, the reason I wanted to make videos is to talk about design. I should stop talking about makeup and cooking recipes and stuff like that. And like, let's just talk about design. That's what I'm most passionate about. Um, so yeah, going all in on that has enabled me to get posted on lists like top designers to follow on YouTube, that sort of thing. Right. And become a, quite a well-known design channel. Yeah. One thing that's inter interesting to me is that even in choosing that niche to, to go for design, you haven't gone what I think most people would find the most um, likely path, which is like a whole bunch of design tutorials. Mm. You definitely have design tutorials. But like if I'm looking specifically for how to, um, I don't know, combine shapes in Figma, your channel is not the like you don't have it a three minute video no. <laughs> of, you know, exactly no. how to do that. You might have mm -hmm. an introduction to Figma. Yep. It's like, I do, <laughs> you know, yeah, you might, I have watched that video. So um, that was part of me switching from Photoshop to Figma was watching your introduction yep. to Figma video. <laughs> um, it's not hypothetical. Um, 
but but what's the reason for not having like not going tips or tutorial based? Honestly, it's it's what I said before about um how a lot of my content comes out is making the kinds of things I want to see. And what I wanted to see is the behind the scenes of people's processes and talking through like the decisions they made about a project. Like, why did they do something this way? That's what I care about more than the how. I feel like there's a million tutorials out there to tell you how to combine shapes and Figma or whatever. Um, there's people who are passionate about that and who are really great at explaining things succinctly and they do it a lot better than I could. And that's just not like the space I'm looking to fill. I want to show people the real life of a professional designer, the projects that I work on, how I work on them, how I make decisions, the challenges I run into along the way. That's the kind of thing that I'm looking to share. And that sort of lens frames all of my content, like not just on YouTube, that is also the newsletter, the book, the anything I tweet as well. <laughs> it, it sort of all comes from this. Yeah, I think that's the mo- the best way to be long-term authentic and stay interested in what you're, what you're creating. Yeah. The like practical side of me is like, but you could do that and have the tips and that would drive, you know, search results and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like that's a tension that so many creators have. Like, this is what I want to make. And this is what I know will also get me short-term results. Like, should I do both? Should I split my focus? Is that something you ever thought about or struggled with? Yeah, that's why I have a Figma 101 video is because I know that that does do well in search. And I think that I think I'm pretty good at explaining at an introductory level, a new piece of software to someone. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't really consider myself a power user of any software. So you're not going to find like a advanced Figma tips video on my channel because I'm not, I don't, right. I'm not really an advanced user. I do what I need to, but I think I'm really good at making um, uh, something that seems scary or new, like a new piece of software that you have to use feel easy to understand. And so that's that's the gap I try to fill in that sense to appease the algorithm. Like right now I'm planning a Webflow 101 video to sort of go along with this 101 series that I'm doing. Um, and my hope is that people see that and then stick around for the rest of the more process-driven stuff. One way that I think helps bridge that gap for people sticking around for, for your content is that you put your personality and yourself in it, right? We don't dive just into... A screencast, yep. um, you know, and it's like if I were to watch a video, like I know I'm watching one of Charlie's videos, mm-hmm. right? It's not like any other video that I just found through through search. And I've had comments about that, Nathan. People have said like, um, oh, why is your, her face so big on the screen? It's always funny how the negative ones talk about you, not to you. Um, <laughs> say, why is her face nice. on the screen so big? And I'm like, well, you're probably not going to like the rest of my videos that are pretty much only my face. So it's okay that you don't like this one. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but you're on my channel. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm the one reading these comments. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. If anyone was starting a YouTube channel today, either in the design space or something else, like what would you tell them? What would you, would you say as far as like that advice to kick it off? I think ask yourself what is not being talked about or not being talked about in a way that you personally find useful or like a perspective that you personally have in the design space in particular, there's a lot of content about like how to become a UX designer, that sort of thing. So it's like, um, and it's probably the same for a lot of topics. It's finding your unique angle on it now is important that the, now that the space is more saturated and leaning into your personality because that is sometimes your point of difference is that there's only one of you, there's only you have lived your experience and like has led you to this point. And that could be uh, an interesting angle to put on anything that you want to teach or share. But 
So that, and also just get freaking started. People seem to like, I don't know, obsess over perfecting their video setup and their audio. And I think it's Roberto Blake who says that your first 100 videos are gonna like be not good. I, again, I'm not, not sure if we can swear on this podcast. You can, you can swear, that's fine. <laughs> okay, they're gonna be shit, Nathan, they're gonna be shit. <laughs> yeah. And so you should just need to get through them and like get in the habit of producing and getting used to seeing your face and hearing your voice. So yeah, if it's something you wanna do, get started sooner rather than later so you can get that awkward stage over with faster. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then like gear and everything else, you just like gradually replace one yeah. thing at a time and exactly and gradually upgrade it. Okay. You did something last year. Now I'm trying to think two years ago. I hate what is time anymore. Yeah. Um, who knows? But <laughs> uh, you made a font and that's something yeah. that I've like looked at. There's like normal people, there's designers and not, this is the way that I think <laughs> and designers who can make a font and for anyone who's just listening to the audio i'm like doing stair step things with my hands yes which you I have to mention that but. <laughs> <laughs> so because that that puts it in a category of like uh i i just think of that as an incredibly difficult thing and and not like a great money maker like there's a lot of difficult things <laughs> that are high difficulty and high rewards you know, the effort versus impact, like you're at the top of both, right? And that's the reason like, okay, great. You know, that's very difficult, but you did it and there's a high um, high financial reward. I'm curious the way you thought about making a font because the way that I see it is that it, it is a very high effort and low financial reward, um, but maybe the reward and impact comes some other way. It, I would say I definitely have not, I don't know, earned even a minimum wage in my sales yet from the hours spent producing the font. Uh, I'm just trying to add it up right now because it was I was sort of across a few different platforms, but I think I've earned about six uh, two thousand six hundred pounds from it so far, which is like not bad. Um, I don't know what that is in US dollars. Um, should I Google that quickly? Sure, let's do it. This will be the episode where we Google everything. <laughs> 3,606 US dollars is around about how much I've made from the font. So it's not bad. Yeah, you know? got 1,000 hours into it, and so about $3 <laughs> an hour. <Yeah. laughs> I don't know. But the cool thing about it is, one, it was just a thing I wanted to do. I thought it would be fun to try because um, I'm an avid like font collector myself. And now it is my passive income. Like I earned... Uh, yeah, the bulk of that income has come in the past year where I've done minimal marketing for the font. I'll like tweet about it or share whenever someone else, someone posts like an image of them using it. Um, but there's not been a huge concerted effort gone into that. Uh, and so that's kind of cool. It feels it's my first passive income that I feel better about than AdSense, for example. <laughs> right. Because it's the thing I yeah. created and I don't know, it's more intentional. Well, then you also get to see it in use around yes, the web. Yes, that is and very like, fun. Oh, that's, that's my font. <laughs> yep, yep. It's really fun. It's, it's especially cool because I just created it as a hand-drawn looking font, but people very quickly just started using it as a font to annotate designs because it does look handwritten and yet it is also like highly readable. And so I really leaned into that as the, like in the way that I frame the font now and the way that I market it is, yeah, this is to annotate your designs in a really clear and legible way that still looks handwritten. And we even use it on the ConvertKit website. <laughs> <laughs> we do, it comes full circle. Yes. <laughs> uh, on that note, I wanna talk about the intersection between having a full-time job and mm -hmm. life as a creator. Cause I think people would would think of it as 
um, I have this and then maybe I have this one side hustle or I have like, and, and you're able, I think through the leverage that you've made with like coming into the job with, a, you know, established audience and, and habits and everything, um, you've been able to, to build, you know, like a small design empire. And so I'm curious <laughs> how you think about balancing those two things and, and what you'd say to someone else really, who is like straddling those worlds. Yeah, I think um, getting clear on what you want from these two worlds is important. So for me, it really matters to me that I'm still designing. And so uh, that's why I, and like contributing to a project that's bigger than just like my own. That's why I like working at ConvertKit. Um, I do not like enjoy freelancing. So like it would be hard for me to really feel fulfilled, I think, freelancing. Right now anyway, who knows, that could change in the future, but. Uh, that's why I am not interested in going full-time on the creating side of things. And so knowing that means I have, okay, um, I know I'm going to work a full-time job and I know that creating is also important to me, all this content that I'm making. I don't want to give that up either. So how do I do them both? How do I figure this out? And it's just been a, um, a constant, constantly changing, um, I don't know, just way that I get this done when I was, I don't know, when I was younger, like, I don't know, five years ago, I used to wake up super early in the morning and do a few hours video editing and things like that on side hustles before starting the day. I feel like I'm older and tireder now and I don't do that. Um, (laughs) But what I do now that I'm earning income from my side hustles is pay people to help me. So I pay for editors, I pay for, um, yeah, video podcast editing. Uh, some VAs who help with my bookkeeping and content management, uploading, that sort of thing, just so that I can really keep the parts I enjoy to do myself and hand off uh, as much as possible of the stuff I don't enjoy. And it's been a worthy investment for me because of, yeah, it making it sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I don't know if you posted this in Slack uh, or in on Twitter or mentioned it somewhere else, but there's a video that you were editing recently yourself. And- yes. <laughs> and that was a bit of a, I don't know, not a wake up call, but like a reminder of like, oh yeah, this is, this is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. That was one that I wanted to edit and then put out like two days later. And so I knew my editor wouldn't have time for a quick turnaround like that. So it's like, well, I'm just going to do it myself. And I'm like, oh, okay. I remember why I outsourced this. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's even outsourcing something that like, you know, well, and are good at and yep. have done for mm-hmm. many years. But I think what you found in that or I mean, the point that I want people to take away is like, you can actually create really a lot if you set up the systems Mm -hmm. and you're willing to let go of the things that you're skilled at, but don't like, they're not the thing that makes the content. Yeah. You know, like maybe if um, you and I were filmmakers, right? The editing and having it just perfect, right? That would be part of it where we're like, oh, wow, that was incredible. Right. But, but like we're, we're teaching content We're sharing mm-hmm. it needs good editing, but it doesn't like, that's not what makes or break the, breaks the video. And so outsourcing that um, allows you to create so much more content. Yep, exactly. And that's, that's often my answer when people say like, oh my gosh, how do you do it all? I'm like, well, I pay people to help me. <laughs> that's how I do it all. I don't do it all myself. <laughs> yeah. When you sit down, like a video that you're making in a given week, I don't know, uh, pick a video. I'd love to hear kind of what your process is. Like, do you just sit down flip on the camera and start talking? Or are you writing a script first? Um, what's your process and, and like how much time does it take? Mm. I 
these days honestly do tend to write a script when it's a video like, um, oh, let's say for example, a recent one I uploaded was one explaining the differences between, I think it was five different job titles in tech that you often see. Um, that is one that I sat down and wrote a script for first. When I film it, I don't, I don't use a teleprompter and I don't necessarily read the script word for word, but it helps me process my thoughts yeah. to write it out first. Um, sometimes I find when I do a video that's just bullet points, it takes me a lot longer to film because I end up like talking about something and then I'm like, no, I don't like the way I phrased that or, or we'll go back and like repeat it a bunch of times. Um, so yeah, getting that out of the way first actually speeds it up for me to spend a bit of time writing. Um, and yeah, I have my filming set up like this background. If you're watching the video version of this podcast, um, is just where I do my filming and that makes it pretty easy to just, yeah, set the camera up, turn it on and film. I generally like to film more than one video at a time as well. Cause if I'm going to like, I don't know, put lipstick on or something, I want it to be worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. What you're saying about writing the script made me think of, um, back when I was doing like design tutorial content, what I would often do is. I would I would know roughly what I was going to to make or like the, the tip I was trying to share or whatever. And I'd have like an idea of like, here's the fake app that I'm going to use mm -hmm. to do it or any of that. Right. Um, and I would record the tutorial and end it. And I'd look at it and, and say it's like a Photoshop tip and it's five minutes long. And then I would set that aside. Wouldn't delete it, but like I'd set it aside. And then I would reset my like new Photoshop document or whatever. And I would record the exact same tutorial again. And I would look and if the first one was five minutes, the next one was three minutes. Mm -hmm. And like, and I never wrote a script or anything, but just the, the action of like doing it twice. Yep. It was so much better the second time. And that's what I found was such an efficient process because um, it still came across naturally. But I like avoided the random rabbit holes that I went down the first time where you're like, you're talking like, this is no longer useful. Should I edit this out later? <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. That, that's I do that sometimes as well when it's more of a um, off the cuff video. I'll so there's been times where I've been like, you know what? I got to the end of my um, thirty minutes of footage, and I feel like I should record this again to make the edit process easier and like so that I'm more clear on what I said and what I didn't. <laughs> right. Yeah, because yeah. it's easier to get clear in the recording in a second mm -hmm. recording than it is for your editor to be like, yeah, what's she trying to okay, say? The here? Yeah. <laughs> version three of this plus version four of that one. Like, there we go. And yeah. uh, we're going to do a jump cut here. So it seems like it's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it'll be great. Don't worry about it. Are there times that the full-time role and you know, like your side work as a creator, like those have conflicted. Well, I think that's mm. the thing that people are wondering. I'm like, Oh, that's, that's great that it magically all works. I'm happy for you. I'm, be happy to share examples as well of times that, like yeah that it has conflicted for me yeah i think that's a really good question because it is often the impression i think that we give across um or that i give across to people um and i find myself in weird situations where i'm convincing someone that my life is not perfect which is weird to <laughs> like find yourself <laughs> yeah. doing um but no you're right totally there's uh I think why it comes across like it all works is because I lean into the moments when I do feel motivation and I do have time mm -hmm. to like batch film a video. Like I haven't filmed a video for a month, you know, and there's still been content going out on my YouTube channel because I filmed it when I had time and when I felt like doing it. Right. Um, but yeah, there's definitely weeks where I can't get what I would like to done on my side hustle because I know that I have to put my job first. And I just have to like accept that that's part of the, like it's like a compromise you make in deciding to do them both and deciding to right. create on the side. 
means that I'm never going to be able to produce as much content as someone who does it full-time can or like take on every opportunity that someone who mm-hmm. creates full-time can. And I just have to be okay with that, right? And if I start to become not okay with that, that's when I need to like check in with it myself and be like, well, what do I really want to be doing here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that one way that they work really well together is like different creative energy. Yes, like, definitely. I've spent so much time recently on like uh, where we're going as a company. You know, it's like all these high level things um, and very little time like as a creator, hmm. which is core to, to who I am. Like if I were to, you know, write down some identity statement, like writer would be pretty high up in there, you know, writer, designer. Um, and so if I get too far away from that, I find that, um, you know, I start to feel like disconnected from who, who I am at my core, but at the same time, like ConvertKit as a company does not need me to be a designer. Like Mm. they're, in fact, I often cause more problems if I jump in and be like, let me design this for you. And, and, you know, then, uh, Al for someone else on a design team. It's like you didn't use the design system. (laughs) Exactly. Like, um, Hi. (laughs) Let me, sh- you remember how I showed you this whole thing and how you didn't use any of it? And now this is really annoying. Um, and so doing something on the side, like I did a, uh, I started a newsletter just talking about money. Mm. Like, um, and doing that on the side has been like a really motivating, like has given me creative energy, even though it's an additional thing. The important distinction is that I had to make sure that it wasn't like a, a treadmill that I was signing up for. Mm. And so it's like going back to, you know, a season of inside marketing design, right? You're like, I have energy, it's going to go towards this, and then it's going to go on pause. Um, and then also, like setting it up, so it's, it's evergreen, right? So instead of sending um, a broadcast every Friday morning, you know, I set it up, so it's an automation and convert it. And you know, it's emails one through five and they just go out automatically. And when I have energy, I come and write and like, you know, the next email is already ready to go and I'm working on one a a few later. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I know that if at any point I stop, like here's this asset that people can keep buying or signing up for um, and using and that like basically that it'll live on. There's a system for it. Yeah. Are there other things where, where you're doing that or other rules that you have in that space? Yeah. So maybe a rule that I have is um, I was finding myself spending a lot of time like reading emails and reading about sponsorship opportunities and like partnership uh, yeah. opportunities from companies. And often I would like feel like I should explore every avenue because like it's someone who's offering to pay me money, right? Like who am I yep. to say no to that? I should do my due diligence and check it out. Um, but you'd get a few emails in and it would turn out their idea of a sponsorship was like much lower than what your idea of a sponsorship was. The company wasn't a good fit or I don't know, you didn't love it. Um, And so I just decided that I'm not going to even entertain the idea of a sponsorship from any company, tool, brand, whatever that I don't already know and use and like using myself. Um, And that's just made it really easy. I just have like a text expander auto response that I can just boop quickly put in to send off to the people who um, offer me sponsorships that I, you know, have never heard of before or don't use. Um, and it, sometimes it hurts to like think about leaving money on the table in that way, uh-huh. but I just have to hope it pays off long-term and that I'm making those smart choices with sponsorships, you know, um, and that there's only one of me and I'd rather be creating than emailing a random company. <laughs> yeah. You made a mental model to help yeah. you make that decision and you mm-hmm. acted on it and mm-hmm. that has freed up not only 
uh, you know, if people talk about like, you only have so many decisions you can make in a day yes, and that exactly. you know, what font to use for this heading is one of those, you know, like we make a ton of decisions that you're just like, look, that's a whole series of decisions that I'm not going to make. Yep. And that frees up creative energy for other things. Cause like, should I take the sponsorship or not? Is not like a creative question. Yes, you know? exactly. The yeah. business admin question. That's not, not so fun. Yeah, totally. And um, another thing that I'm in the middle of right now, I said before the Design Life podcast is having a summer break. I'm also taking a bit of a summer break from my newsletter, from videos mm -hmm. to allow the space to work on season two of Inside Marketing Design um, and also to spend some time writing my book, which is completely like fallen by the wayside over the past few months, um, you know, just got out of the habit of it. And that's important to me. So um, I don't have the luxury of being able to do those things as well as continuing with the like content hamster wheel mm -hmm. of the other stuff. And so even though it feels like it's quite a risk, you know, especially in terms of the YouTube algorithm to stop uploading for a while, uh, right. it's what I have to do in order to bring to life this thing that is important to me also. Um, and at the end of the day, that's what's important. Uh, even if my audience on YouTube stays exactly the same and I bring this thing to life, I would rather have that happen than have grown and not made it. Right. Yeah. I see you like you at 200,000 subscribers now. And what I hear you saying is you'd rather be like, we have this whole string of words that we can use to describe Charlie and uh -huh. adding author to that yes. is more important than the next 50,000 YouTube subscribers yes. in 12 months or something like that. Yes. I would like to say I have a quarter of a million YouTube subscribers. I would really like to say that, but I would <laughs> much rather say that I'm an author. <laughs> You're Hopefully right I'll get them both one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'll get both. It's just a matter of time. <laughs> yeah. um, that is an interesting thing. If, like if you stay consistent and steady, like so many of the things that you want just come with time. Mm -hmm. um, so it's good. Okay. Last thing that I want to ask you about is most people listening to this podcast are going to be newsletter creators. Yep. Right. So you started on YouTube and went to a newsletter um, or added a newsletter in addition. Yep. Um, what would you say to the people who have started with the newsletter? Let's say they've got 10,000 subscribers or 15,000 um, and they're thinking about going to YouTube and mm. adding in video, especially because uh, newsletters, for example, don't have an algorithm behind it. Yeah. Right. And so on one hand, you're like, yay, every, you know, it's a one to one relationship. That's fantastic. On the other hand, you're like, hey, there's no built-in distribution. <laughs> there's no discovery. Yep. Um, and so I'm curious what you would say to someone who's thinking about uh, making them jump over to YouTube. First of all, I think that you should do it because when you when someone sees you on video, they, they'll start to imagine the words that you're writing in your newsletter in your own voice, you know, as they read it. And they'll yep. make more of a personal connection with you. I think video is so powerful for that. Um, so, you know, every creator, I think, should try and involve video somewhere in in part of what they make i think that you should make videos about stuff that's a similar topic to your newsletter to like tie into the audience there and what's worked out well for me is having a fairly educational focused video that uh, is one that i specifically created to do well in search results you know to help people out who are searching yep. for a certain topic having an opt-in that you offer and like specifically mention it in the video not just the description call it out, show a picture of it on screen or whatever, um, will get the people to join your email list from a video. I found that to be a really good path. Um, lower conversion rate than you might expect because a lot of people, I don't know, it's hard to get them to take action from a video. But those who do, if the video is on the same topic as your newsletter, 
they'll stick around and uh, become like a good good audience member for you. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. I like it. I particularly like the the idea of, you know, switching to video as a media type and like saying, great, now people know what you sound like mm-hmm. and go through this whole thing. How do you think about, okay, maybe this is a different question. Um, we host Craft and Commerce every year, right? For ConvertKit. Well, we have yeah. it for the last <laughs> yeah. several oh, years. Now really we're sad. depressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think about like, let's say two speakers that we've had, Casey Neistat and Mark Manson. I imagine they have very, they lead very different lives hmm. as far as, right? If Casey Neistat walks to the airport and Mark Manson walks through the airport, they're going to have very different experiences as far as like number of people who recognize them. Yes. I imagine that the majority of people who have read Mark Manson's books, and at this point it's like 5 million people or 10 million, like something ridiculous, right? Um, they have no idea what he looks like. Yeah, I didn't until I saw him at Craft and Commerce. <laughs> right, he walks in, you're like, you know, hey, who are you? you know, he's like, oh, I'm the keynote speaker or whatever. And you're like, great. Oh, oh okay then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is that something that people should think about of... I guess the pros and cons of being recognized. Do you have any any examples or stories as mm. well of you, of you being recognized? I feel like I get recognized sometimes if I'm at a either a design or a YouTube event. Um, mm-hmm. I've only had it happen, I think, twice that I've been recognized just like out on the street. And it was in London um, where I was living at the time. Yeah. And so, I don't know, it's weird, but I don't think it should be anything that either deters you or is the reason to make videos, you know? Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of nice and I've enjoyed it, honestly, at design or YouTube events. As an introvert, it gives like something to talk about. If someone comes up to you, that means, oh, great, I'm not having to approach someone else awkwardly. Someone else has made yes. that, you know, taken on that challenge and now we get to have a conversation and I can just ask questions about them because they already know about me if they've seen my videos. And uh, that's just a good situation for me to be in. <laughs> it is the, the single best conference hack to yep. have an audience and a persona and all of that. Like the first conference that I ever went to, I, t- I think I spoke to two people the entire time, maybe three. Maybe, <laughs> but they were like the person who sat next to me, yeah. you know, like I sat at a lunch table and like quietly, you know, and someone said hi, like that kind of thing. And then after I started blogging and went to a conference and like people were like lining up to talk to me and, I'm like, what? and it wasn't even one of the speakers, you know, and it was just the best hack of like, I hate introducing myself to people and I hate like, you know, all the, I've done it a lot more, you know, like the last decade I've gotten more comfortable with it. Um, but yeah, when people just come up and say like, oh, Nathan, I love, love your blog post, you know, Charlie, I loved your video. And you're just like, as an introvert, you're like, yes, I yeah, wanted like, to meet right. you. I just didn't want to put in any work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right. Well, maybe we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, where should people go to subscribe and follow all the things that you're creating on the internet? I think the best place would be my website, charliemarie.com. There's links to my blog posts, to sign up for my newsletter in the footer, the videos, the podcasts, they're all on there. The font as that well, if good. you want to annotate your designs. <laughs> yeah, buy the font, use it, send send a screenshot to Charlie. Yes, That'll and I will reshare it on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Well, thanks for ha- hanging out. This has been really fun. Yeah, good chat, Nathan. Mm-hmm.